Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host Titus and today I am joined by Professor John Marini for the beginning of a long series of conversations on the cinema of John Ford. We will start with The Searchers, one of the two most impressive movies to my mind. And I would like to start by telling you a bit about how I met Professor Marini. First as a reader of Claremont Review of Books, which I am happy to receive as an alumnus of the Claremont Institute and to read. Professor Marini has an article in the latest issue about the administrative state, one of his academic specialties. And I read his essays on John Ford on the Western as a reflection on American politics and human nature, on American history and government and ideas, all done with great artistry. And this is what started me thinking about the Western in a serious way, although of course I had the boy's love of John Wayne's movies just because he's so attractive. Then, in Claremont, as a student of political philosophy and American government, I got to spend some time talking with Professor Marini about movies. That's how we got the idea to do some recordings about great American directors, John Ford, Sam Peckinpah in the Western, Frank Capra, and we will be doing as much of that as time permits in future. And, of course, in Claremont, the professor gave us a talk about the other greatest achievement of John Ford, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, which will be our next conversation, and we watched the movie together. But The Searchers is, in a sense, before Liberty Valance thematically, and we decided to start with this one. Sir, thank you for joining me, and let's start talking John Ford. Well, let me say, this is just a hobby for me. I'm, I'm not a specialist on movies. I reflect on them when I see them, and so I'm an amateur. I've always liked John Ford. I thought he's the most thoughtful of all the directors, particularly when it comes to his westerns. But all of his movies as well, I've paid more attention to the westerns, partly because I think he had this clear view as early as 1939, when he made a series of movies, Stagecoach, Along the Mohawk, and The Young Mr. Lincoln. And in that, I think he was trying to reflect on, he goes back to the earliest war in America, the revolution in Drums Along the Mohawk, looks at the establishment of, you might say, a Republican form of popular government. And in The Young Mr. Lincoln, I think he contemplates the necessity of what it takes to perpetuate that regime. And he does it in the life of the young Abraham Lincoln. Certain kinds of character you need, certain virtues you need to be able to perpetuate a regime of liberty and equality. But then in The Searchers, what he saw was you can contemplate every political question, the beginning, the perpetuation, and the fragility, really, of civilization. The fragility of civilization was a direct experience for John Ford because he volunteered in World War II and led a filming crew for the Navy, risking his life and that of his crew during battles with the Japanese in the Pacific Theater. And some of the men on his crew actually died doing the job. You've talked to me about this before, both how he learned how fragile civilization is and how much it is in need of certain kinds of help and of the bravery of certain kinds of men in order to defend it, and also, and perhaps more troublingly, how barbarism and tyranny can re-emerge within civilization, and both together led him to reject the ideas of the progressives when it comes to human nature, even though he was a great supporter of FDR. So please tell me more about his activities during the war. 
he photographs some of the most important battles of that war. And at the end of the war, he was also responsible for putting together the film that ultimately was used in Nuremberg about the camps. His assistant was Bud Schulberg, who put this stuff together. He came to understand, and I think he always understood instinctively, that you could not have a progressive view of human history. That every fundamentally important question retains the possibility of reoccurrence at any time. So tyranny is always a possibility in human beings. Civilization was established, but it wasn't necessarily once established and always improving and getting better and better. Ford was well aware of every change that occurs in the way human beings organize their lives and establish the morality for the way they live. They oftentimes gain things, they oftentimes lose things. Some things that are inherent in the earlier period that requires the virtues that are necessary, say, to establish law and order say, in the case of uh, Liberty Valance, the kind of character that you need to do that is not the kind you need once it's done. And so they become obsolete in some ways. But those virtues are always potentially necessary. But human vices are also potentially there in all times. Yes, The Searchers is set in the American South, in Texas, right after the end of the Civil War. The story itself is very simple. Ethan Edwards, played by John Wayne, has to go in search of his niece, who has been abducted by Comanche Indians. But this turns out to open up all the fundamental questions about savagery and civilization, about law and freedom, about family and manliness. And John Ford found this all in the American West and within America in its most important moment, the Civil War. The question of the American destiny, union, has been decided in principle, but in fact, order and law have not yet been installed. We have a great suggestion, comically concealed, in the fact that Ward Bond plays a reverend and also a captain of Texas Rangers. Law and faith have not yet been separated. This makes for a great study in contrasts, America before it was fully ordered and America afterwards. The characters that emerge, the virtues and vices that are likely to prevail, that are necessary or that are necessary to guard against. And so you're right, this offers Ford a great opportunity to reflect on human nature, both as it expresses itself in America and as it might express itself in other places where law and justice have to be installed within savagery, chaos. Now, I think this is primarily a film about family, about installing the sacred law of family on which everything else has to be built later. That later building, of course, being the man who shot Liberty Valance. But the first thing that people run into these days in terms of the virtues and vices on display in the movie is the character played by John Wayne, Ethan Edwards. He is an outcast now in America. He fought on the losing side, on the Confederate side, and in a sense he never stopped. He's the last man in America because he's the one who has not surrendered. He thinks he's so manly that in a certain sense he can live by himself, be his own law. And he is the man who is supposed to become the guarantor of the family, its greatest protector, before any other thing is possible. 
But nowadays, even if people were to allow that such manliness is necessary and was really present in the early parts of American history, as it might be now in, say, special forces operators, they would still be shocked by his actions and they would think him racist. This question of racism and civil rights was, of course, a great one during John Ford's time, but did he think of it in these terms? Did his audience think about it? The searchers is often understood in terms of race. And when I first started lecturing on this at the Claremont Institute, and I knew I lived through that time, I knew that that was not the conscious way that was understood in 1955. So I went back and read all of the reviews that were written about the searchers when it came out, and not one mentioned races. That was not Ford's way of understanding things. Ford was much more philosophic in the way he viewed human beings. From the point of view of Ford, I think what the searchers was about is the bigger and the more important philosophical question. He's looking at the human dilemma, the problems presented to human beings at all times. And you think he went deeper than issues of race to issues of human nature because of things he learned during the war? Do you think that changed his thinking? In a way, or looked at his art in a way differently. You look at George Stevens, at Capra, or you look at William Wyler, who also were guys who went to the war and were involved in photographing elements of that war. All of them had trouble with thinking about movies when they came back. It seemed so frivolous to them. The reality of the world as they experienced it in those years of the war, it shaped them and made them try to use their art, I think, on behalf of re-examining the fundamentally important questions. And the Western was one of the best ways to do that because it talks about founding the establishment of law and order, the necessity of having to perpetuate law, how to establish education. Almost every moral question is involved in a Western movie. When you look at the searchers and you see, let's take the two prototypical characters who are one, in some ways, the most sophisticated and most civilized individual on the side of the settlers is Ethan Edwards. He's a wanderer. He is the closest you can get to an Odysseus. He knew the customs. He knew the languages, typically. And yet, he is, in many ways, more barbaric than the barbaric character of Scar, the chief. And if you go through and just look at the way he portrays those two, and the way in which he portrays the battle between the so-called uncivilized, the barbarians, the heathens, and the Christians, the civilized, it's very interesting to see that the acts that are necessary for them mirror each other. Ethan Edwards is clearly, in some ways, more barbaric than Scar in the way in which he responds to the enmity that's engendered by this battle. Scar kills the bulls when he makes that raid on the farm there in order to draw the people away. The bulls are, of course, necessary for the future of the settlers, but when Ethan Edwards or understands that necessity in the same way, he just wantonly shoots down buffalo after buffalo. And, of course, the civilized man is a more clever barbarian once he loses the restraints that are necessary for civilization. He does something even Scar would never do. He scalps a person that he doesn't even kill. So all of these are ways in which Ford is showing a problem. He's not trying to take a side. 
Yes, so Ethan Edwards is in some ways more human and in other ways less human than his Indian counterpart Scar. He's not intended to be seen as simply superior or simply good, but in fact is quite a terrifying character. He is by no means a good guy. He's a recognizably American character, but he's also very strange. He's a wanderer, as you said. Just look at the way in which Ford took care. Look at the lyrics of the song that the Sons of the Pioneers sing, the beginning of the movie and the end. Ford actually worked with Stan Jones, who was one of the guys who wrote the lyrics. It's very clear. Ford wrote the first and the last stanzas. The first stanza is what makes a man to wander, what makes a man to roam, what makes a man leave bed and board, turn his back on home. And you tie this to Homer and Odysseus, as you said, turning your back on home, indeed, to go off to war and trying to make your way back. And you found some evidence for this in Ford's movies. He made one of his aviator movies right after The Searchers, right? Uh, Wings of Eagle. Ford had on his mind at the time he was making The Searchers a book that is right there on the desk when Spig Weed, he's the character in that movie that John Wayne plays, the pilot, and Ward Bond is the biographical character of John Ford himself. There's a copy of Homer. Yeah, the journalist writer character that plays John Ford, really. He has the book right there on his table when the hero, Spig Weed, comes to visit him. So how did John Ford use Homer? You can see that the searchers embodies both elements of the Iliad and the Odyssey. The first line of the Iliad, sing goddess of the anger of Achilles. The searchers is about the anger of Ethan Edwards. The Odyssey is about wandering. But wandering, if it's in combination with wondering, it establishes the ground, really, of philosophy and the understanding of nature and makes it possible to understand a ground of civilization. What you're seeing in Searchers is he's a wanderer, but so is Chief Scar. Scar belongs to a wandering tribe. It's a hunting and gathering tribe. It knows no limits in terms of territory, no limits on the power of the warlord. It's despotic at the level of the household. All of this, of course, is perfectly Aristotelian. Aristotle shows the superiority of the family life to the barbarian. Ford was a great reader. We know he read Homer because he shows that right in the next movie. But he read a lot more. But let me look at the last stanza of the song. First, he asked, what makes somebody wonder? In other words, why do you leave home? How do you establish home? He says, a man will search his heart and soul, go searching way out there. His peace of mind, he knows he'll find. But where, oh Lord, Lord, where? That's, in a certain way, the human problem. So when you look at the searchers, it's a reflection on the human situation at the foundations, at its origins. It's a precursor, in a way, to Liberty Valley. Because Liberty Valance presupposes civilization to where he seeks to deal with the problem of how to establish law and order within a civilized community where you already have canons of the law in the form of law books, etc., but you don't have the conditions for the establishment of the rule of law. Ford is, in this one, going back to an earlier and more profound necessity of establishing civilization and, of course, the kinds of passions that you need to establish civilization the opposition between the outlook that's necessary for civilization. In other words, what has to be established in the form of the family, law, religion, 
all of those are necessary conditions for civilization. But there are always passions that resist that outlook or that necessity. You see that in Ethan Edwards. But the irony, of course, is you need those passions in the beginning to establish, and ultimately you need those passions to sustain civilization. So always within civilization, you have the necessity of thumos, the necessity of those passions. In World War II, Ford filmed the Battle of Midway. He said when he saw some of those young farmers out there that were on those ships that he was on filming the great naval battle, World War II, he said, I knew we were going to win the war just watching those people. He said that he didn't know what courage was for. He said he didn't have it, in fact. And he said he didn't know what made it. But he said, it's not the loudmouths. It's not the guys that come forward. And, but it was those quiet little boys, those farmers out there that just did their job. And he says, you could see, I knew then that we would win the war. But he also knew that that kind of moral character to establish those young farm boys, that some of them had been no more than 30, 40 miles from their homes. Those kinds of moral characters threatened by the kind of civilization that, in a certain way, had begun to destroy Germany in the beginning of the 20th century. Now, Ford wasn't a philosopher, but he was a poet, and in many ways closer to philosophy than a historian would be, because he grappled with and looked at these problems, but he would never give an intellectual defense of what he was doing. When Peter Bogdanovich or some of these critics would ask him, well, what did you mean by that? He wouldn't tell them what he meant. He would just say, watch the movie. And that's what it was. His movies are the art. They are the things that reveal the problems. He once said, people are incorrect to compare a director to an author. He says, if he's a creator, he's more like an architect. And an architect conceives his plans according to precise circumstances. I think everything in Ford's movies are conceived of and understood in that way. You can see it in the way in which he changes the script when he's filming and realizes that something else will work better in those circumstances. Every time I've looked at what was in a script, and how he changed it, you knew that instinctively he was right. He instinctively knew it, but it was also theoretically right, I believe. In a way, all of these are problems an artist like Ford has using this format of the West as a way of engaging these problems, which the literary men have abandoned. I like to quote Jorge Luis Borges, who was a lover of Western movies, but it was because of this. He said once, I think nowadays, well, literary men seem to have neglected their epic duties. The epic has been saved for us, strangely enough, by the Westerns. During this century, the epic tradition has been saved for the world by, of all places, Hollywood. He made that remark in the Paris Review, I think, in 1967. Now, the man who created the epic Western is John Ford. He turned it into an art form, and I think he did it beginning with stagecoach. Every problem that you can see, and, and in that one, remember one of the last lines of the movie when John Wayne and Claire Trevor head off to their ranch, Thomas Mitchell says, saved from the blessings of civilization. Do you remember that line? Yeah. yeah. Already there, of course, there is a tension, particularly when conventions establish a way of behavior that's in opposition to nature. One could see that the character of Claire, she was a good person, although she was a whore conventionally. <laughs> yeah. These kinds of things are always there in Ford. I think you really have to understand Ford by thinking the way he thought about these things, but not intellectually, but the way he presents them artistically.
And in a way, what he shows is what Aristotle said, that poetry establishes a better understanding than history of reality. If it's done properly, history is a record of certain things, but how to make those things intelligible in a way that transcends just the factual. You could see that in the way in which Ford in Liberty Valance establishes a factual record, really, what actually happened there in Shinbone when the Rance Stoddard and Tom Donovan characters play out their roles. But when he shows what actually happens through the various flashbacks, it doesn't reveal the reality of the necessity of what had to happen in the way in which law came to be established. In other words, the poetry of the whole film establishes a better understanding of what needed to be done than the way in which what actually happened revealed itself. When the newspaper editor decides to not print what actually happened, he says, when the legend becomes fact, print the legend. What he's saying is, the simple factual elements of what happened then would be unintelligible to the people who were shaped by what happened in the way in which the tension between Donovan and Stoddard played itself out. Nobody knew who Tom Donovan was. If you come back and say the truth is Tom Donovan did this, you don't have any greater clarity about what happened than in the way that Ford records it. But Ford knows that what's going to reveal what happened is the legend, the poetry, not the fact. Does that make sense? Yep, you're perfectly right that that's the strongest case John Ford made that poetry is superior to journalism, history, to yeah. the just the facts attitude. Right. And this is a deep understanding of Aristotle. On the face of it, all Aristotle says when he says that poetry is more philosophical than history is that poetry doesn't include accidents. In history, right, sure. sometimes a brick falls on somebody's head. It just happened. Sure. It's meaningless. Whereas in right. poetry, all the accidents are planned. But John Ford right, shows right. that he understands that planning the yeah. accidents actually means taking on a great responsibility. You have to That's tell right. the truth about human things mm -hmm. in a way most people most of the time don't quite grasp because accidents yeah. always blur their perspective. And their mm -hmm. own small perspective wasn't planned out architectonically like right. that of the poet. And that you can see that in the searchers too. Ford juxtaposes tragedy and comedy. Comedy does reveal the things that tragedy is unwilling to reveal because of the flaw in the character of the heroes. With Ford, comedy is in a way truer than tragedy in terms of revealing truth. Yes. That's why Shakespeare, in many ways, is the most complete poet because he's both a tragic and comic poet. Yes. And the elements of comedy, of course, reveal why it is that the tragedy is so tragic in some ways. But, you know, Ford's always criticized for those comic elements in things like The Searchers. But I think that's a good instinct, too, that he had in establishing those comic elements. Because the tragedy leads to too great despair, really. So I think you have to understand all of Ford's movies in this way. In other words, you have to look beneath the surface but you have to understand the surface, too. Surface is always very important. Yes, for yes, indeed. You're right. A combination of tragedy and comedy of the Iliad and the Odyssey. Even Ethan Edwards himself is capable of laughing. And yeah, yeah, not yeah. just of laughing at other people's expense when they are fools, but laughing at the things about human nature that are essentially laughable, like falling in love. <laughs> right. <laughs> 
courting in the movies throughout surrounded in comedy in america love is to a certain extent free and that yeah. means that people will make mistakes and make fools of themselves but it also means that there's a certain joy to courting and this allows ford to portray something you read in alexi de tocqueville that american women are unique in the world for their combination of safety innocence and flirting and so in this movie you see one girl vera miles whom john mm. ford also also used to great effect in Liberty Valance yeah, as yeah. the prototypical American woman. She's much manlier than women would be in stories, especially in stories about gunslingers and savage tribesmen and war and death. But she's also capable of making a fool of herself, making a fool of men who are too bashful or too blind to the requirements of love. And so she's a woman who knows her own will. Yeah, when you get to Liberty, she becomes a very important character. But I think the women are always an important character. If you notice in The Searchers, again, looking at the juxtaposition between the civilized and the despotic or pre-civilized, the importance in The Searchers for the settlers were the women. Everything revolved around the women because they were the future. Yes. And they were laboring for a future that they would not see. That famous line by uh, Mrs. Jorgensen, uh, Texicans were like a human out on a limb. We have to labor now. And that requires fierce monogamous families, law and religion. All of those things are required. It's so much focused on women that at a certain point, remember, Mrs. Jorgensen goes up to Ethan Edwards when he's going out on another search. says, remember the boys too. She says, you can't spend your whole life going after the women. But notice for Scar, what animated him was the death of his sons. Mm -hmm. The warrior society, the men are important. Yes, that establishes a great distinction. First of all, among the Indians, the women don't matter. They have no, no freedom. No. And second no. of all, when crisis, necessity, danger come up, men just become suddenly very important. And sure. their own self-importance ends up defining the world in a tragic way, as you mentioned before. Men like Scar and Ethan Edwards think they're destined to fight each other. They're yeah. ceremonious about it. Scar knows Ethan Edwards when Ethan Edwards knows him and lets him yeah. go nevertheless. He's not dishonorable. Yeah. In fact, he's no, not at more all. honorable. Yeah, yeah. But still tragic. Yeah. Whereas the women, as you pointed out, and again, this is straight out of Tocqueville, in America, a woman will choose her husband, but then still, in a certain way, resign herself to him. It's yeah. not that American women rule their husbands, but they do choose them. Just like you see mm -hmm. with Ethan Edwards' sister-in-law. Her tenderness to him in the first act shows that there was probably affection between them. But Ethan Edwards is too much man. He's too savage. Yeah. The war is over for everybody else in America, but not for Ethan Edwards. No, right? no. And it, there's that hint she probably did love Ethan in that early day, but did recognize, too, that he was a wanderer. Yes. That he would never be stable and like her husband, his brother. Exactly. Uh, and, and that, uh, of course, announces the choice in Liberty yeah. Balance as well. When a woman, Vera yeah, Miles sure. from The Searchers, sure. has to choose between a man who's all man and a yeah. man who's civilized, tamed, domesticated right, right. to the extent that he can live with a woman as comparables. That's the phrase yeah. Tocqueville prefers to equals. Comparables. Well, the difficult problem is, of course, how to allow the choice that women have but still remain womanly. <laughs> you must maintain the distinction between the sexes. 
But that natural distinction doesn't have to be fortified in, in the ways in which it had been fortified before. You know, the way they become tools for the reproduction of warriors. Yes. And, and it doesn't John matter Ford even whether... always against that. In all his movies, yeah. Yeah. women, especially when they have a chance to do dancing and there are musical parties, tend to take over and show a certain freedom and spiritedness of their own. They're still yeah. women, unlike the men, but they show they have certain powers of rule and they can install a sort of private life where they yeah. rule. They boss no, around in the kitchen, and it turns out that this is quite a power. Yeah, but also you could see that in Stagecoach. The Indian woman who does a dance and sings at the outpost there. I had forgotten that scene. Yeah, that. and one of the lines in it is, because I'd watched this one not too long ago. When one of the white settlers sees her, they says, oh, a savage. This is his wife, the innkeeper there. And he says, yes, she's a little bit savage. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> but that, that of course in a is way that, the searchers as well that yeah. women often act immorally or even against the law, but wisely. Yeah. Well, like, look at Lori Jorgensen. Exactly. In the relationship at the end, she sides with uh, Ethan Edwards that the girl should be killed. Yeah, that's the other part of the movie. Even in their wild and savage ways, men are more inclined to morality and principle than women are. Women are more prudent. They're willing to compromise, even to compromise principles of human dignity. Ford makes it yeah. obvious that Ethan Edwards is the Achilles of America. He is the manliest oh, yeah. imaginable. Yeah. Precisely because, as he famously says, an engine will chase a thing a while and then he'll stop. Yeah, yeah. If he thinks he's had enough. He doesn't mm. understand that there are some things that will just, just keep, keep coming. on coming. Yeah. So that's what natural men like Scar and the Indians don't understand. That when yeah. once you develop the powers of civilization, you mm. can put your mind to a purpose fanatically and never stop. But what you could see is that Lori had a point. Once you establish families, then it's absolutely necessary to retain the family, and to prevent those who become additions, really, to the opposition, to the enemy. I mean, the Indians were indifferent whether the vessel for a child is an enemy or a member of the tribe. Yes. They would use white women. So if you look at it from the perspective, say, of Lori, whose purpose is wholly to preserve her family, well, we can't allow that. And Ethan's had that same desire for revenge. You have to right wrongs against kin. That's why, in a way, the Oristia, too, can apply to what it is that yes. Ford is doing. When the family has to rely on their own members to protect them, then revenge becomes as important a moral imperative as just survival itself. So it, there's a moral imperative yes. of revenge. And that, you're right, uh, John Ford figured out that with the Civil War in America, all bets were off. It was a fratricidal war. It was American against American, jeopardizing oh, every right, principle right. of justice. And therefore, it brought up this ancient problem. Can you really have a sacred law that protects the family? And how no, could it's... you turn that into civilization? The outrage that sets all the wrath of Ethan Edwards in motion is the outrage against family. Yeah, and of course, Ford knows that the basis of family and civilization is women. That's going to be fundamental. How do you solve that and make that the ground, really, of how men are going to relate to them and each other? <laughs> 
Yep, he uh, constantly so. insists that women set the rules of conversation between men and women. And that's, of course, because men are more dedicated to abstract principles and it can make them very narrow-minded. And it can make them ashamed of necessity and of human nature. Well, but you can see Ford is pretty explicit in carrying out the character of Ethan on the pattern of an Odysseus or Achilles. I mean, in the Achilles role, you can see that that anger prevents him from just the kind of civilized things that when Martin, Polly, and Ethan go back to civilization, Martin, Polly takes a bath. Yep. And Ethan Edwards retains that savagery and that anger. He never becomes civilized again, even in those ordinary ways. And you can see a number of occasions where Ford mimics what Achilles does when he takes that knife when after he comes out of the hills there and he finds one of the girls and he just starts flailing at the sand. It's almost the way Achilles flails it to sea. Yes. So there's a lot of indications. That, yeah. But these are all artistic ways, I think, that, yeah. that Ford had that he would never try to explain and announce Ethan Edwards doesn't like Achilles on the one hand he doesn't come into the house at the end no he's right no not, of course he's not yeah. permissible within the limits of sacred law yeah. and uh, just like the manliest man of them all the cinematic John Wayne in Liberty Valance cannot be part of politically civilized equality in the rule of law America he's beyond it has to be forgotten so also here he cannot be part of the sacred law of the family he doesn't get into that house and it is prepared and announced by a lot of these cinematic details that yeah. all add up. Each one yeah. of them well, may be innocent or incomprehensible, but in the mass, they all of a sudden portray a man who has decided so seriously to follow one principle. Like he says, I'm only good for one oath at a time. Yeah. He will not change with changing times. He once no. swore, and that is all there is for him. And it's not an accident that he swore on the Confederacy, because the yeah. Confederacy was the aristocracy, the terrible inegalitarian force in American politics. They were willing but, to die for slavery. Well, the, what you can see that the thing about Ethan that makes him recalcitrant to civilization are the things that animate him throughout. He's not religious in the Christian sense. When they're singing, uh, shall we gather at the river? He says, put an amen to it. But when, he, <laughs> when they unearth the body of that Indian, he shoots the eyes out of the Indian. Yeah. He seems to assume, of course, the doctrine of the Comanche. That means you can't enter the promised land. Whatever you want to think about and, it. Right. That, you know, that is such a great contrast. Ethan Edwards objects against Christianity. The entire doctrine of we shall gather at the river. Yeah. Such yeah. an American spiritual, such a hymn about salvation, about deliverance. Yeah. And that angers him. He wants to yeah. make sure the unrighteous, the wicked, will be punished in perpetuity. The possibility of notice, salvation is a personal insult to him. But and in fact, of course, he's he's destined to wander too. And, exactly. and in the end, he, they, is, he, he again, shut out. so fitting. He shoots out the eyes of the Comanche so yeah, that he doesn't yeah. know where he's going. That's exactly true of him as well. No, right. And that's the problem with the kind of passion that is unwilling, really, to establish those limits on the kind of passions that lead you to the glorification, really, of that spiritedness that is unwilling to be tamed in some ways. 
Yes, John Ford, who is responsible for the myth of John Wayne, shows throughout how aware he is that manliness is very dangerous and that it's barely a little better than it is worse. It's utterly necessary, however. Yeah, one of the symbols, the physical symbols of the searchers that provides a dividing line is the river. On the one side is civilization, on the other, barbarism. The absolute necessity for civilization, family, law, religion, when you're on a precarious limb like that, and you don't even have the resources to be able to establish separations. I mean, look at the Ward Bond character. He is both the military and the religious authority. Ford really uses Shall We Gather at the River very frequently in his movies. That was first published, I don't know if you're familiar with the background of that song. That song was not a hymn. It became something like a hymn after the Civil War, but it was actually written during the Civil War by a preacher, a man named Robert Lowry, who was a pastor in Brooklyn. It was in a hot day in July in 1864, he said, when he fell asleep in his backyard from physical exhaustion. And in his imagination, he heard these lines, and it was, you know, shall we gather at the river where bright angels' feet have trod with its crystal tide forever flowing by the throne of God? Yes, we'll gather at the river, the beautiful, the beautiful river, gather with the saints at the river that flows by the throne of God. The last refrain is, soon we'll reach the silver river, soon our pilgrimage will cease, Soon our happy hearts will quiver with the melody of peace. This is about the Civil War. And for Ford, one of the things he says is the American Civil War was the most important thing in his life. It animated his uncles. His father was going to come to fight in the Civil War. And of course, it is said by the people that knew him, including William Clothier, who was one of the guys that photographed his movies, said he knew more about the Civil War than any person he had ever known. Ford did. He knew all the generals, he knew all the battles, he knew all the insignias, and he was respectful to both sides, the fighting men of both sides, because he respected that courage. And now, you know, his great hero, of course, was Lincoln, but Mm -hmm. still, he understood the dilemmas. I mean, that's the real thing about his artistry. There's always the ambiguity that's not in the movie, it's in the nature of the things themselves. If you can't reveal the ambiguity, you won't understand the nature of the problem. Yes, exactly. This most imposing hero of his, Ethan Edwards, was a loyal of the Confederates. And this is never criticized precisely because the whole point there is that in a crisis of that magnitude, every principle of justice is in danger and certain original possibilities show up again. Civilization will hide them as it must. And he certainly doesn't make of Ethan Edwards a hero except in the sense of tragic hero. Mm -hmm. Somebody you're not supposed to imitate. Nobody wants to end up that way. No, no. Uh, But but it's important to see that there is greatness there. Yeah. Well, I think that's true. And there's a certain nobility that you can see in Scar. They are not civilized in the sense that they don't think universally. But they do think in terms of their own. They bury their own dead. They don't establish that courtesy for their enemies. But you notice when Ethan Edwards at the river there, when he starts shooting at them, when they're trying to pick up their dead, he's not even allowing them to bury their own dead. Yes. That's even more barbaric than Scar would have been. Yes, Scar allows them. That was prophetic and reminiscent at the same time about what civilized people are like yeah. when they're pushed far enough. Yeah. And also in his lodge, 
He was very hospitable. And it was clear when they talked to each other that they understood each other. Remember yes. that one of the lines? I don't remember it exactly. Ethan Edwards tells him that he speaks good English, and then Scar tells him that he speaks good Comanche. Yeah, right, right. They right. recognize each other as both yeah. familiar and stranger, both interloper and natural similars. Yeah, and you can see that the Nawaki Comanche, the Scar's truck, they're unwilling to settle down anywhere. So in, in principle, their claims are universal about territory. They go anywhere. They take yes. whatever they want. They'll even take food from the enemy, the American government. Yep. If uh, so, and all of these just are just like Ethan Edwards. If you could conceive of a race of heroes like Ethan Edwards, it would be the Nowaki Comanche. <laughs> Something. And yeah, like it... Ethan Edwards, they are full of deception. Like yeah. he conceives an ambush for Futterman and the other corrupt mm. Americans. So also Scar conceives of ambushes and deceptions, and yeah. that's what the name of his tribe means. They say they go one way, but they go the other. Yeah, yeah. You wonder in in the character of. Uh, Ethan Edwards. Ford does it pretty subtly, but it's very clear that Martha has tender feelings for Ethan. The way mm -hmm. she pets his coat. Even Ward Bond sees that there was something. But you wonder, and it's very clear that Edwards is not interested in any woman. But the question that's more interesting to me is whether or not if he had loved her and she had acquiesced, would that have helped civilize him a little bit? No, not him. So <laughs> See, that's the question. Well, the woman made the right choice. No, she probably did from the point of view of the dilemma. It's not what she might have dreamed of, but it was the most reasonable yeah. thing to do. And yeah. he is just beyond reasonable. The movie about this is Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven, where a savage man, all of Western manliness, is actually civilized by a woman. That's yeah, a, right. I mean, and, well, and of that, course, that's that also happen, about installing justice. But that guy was somewhat different. That's the one passion, if there is a passion, yes. that's going to make somebody like an Ethan who's prone to be a wonder, yeah. by love can be induced into a familial relationship and into the blessings of civilization. <laughs> to put a word on it, into domestication. Like yeah, horses, he yeah. needs breaking before he can be ridden, and only women can do that. But the problem with thinking about this historically and not philosophically is you don't recognize that that need always exists. And Ford does recognize that that need for some virtues and passion that Ethan Edwards has, that may be required at any time. Look at World War II. Yes. What would have happened if the West and certainly the United States could not have responded? Yeah, uh, exactly. You could go back to a different regime, uh, and who knows what the character of it might be when it has free reign to do whatever it wants. Yeah. Make and of Ford course, as a if you were to look nowadays, this January, a movie came out in theaters. That's a true story called 12 Strong, which is a terrible name about American special force operators who were horse-riding soldiers in Afghanistan. Hmm. Yeah. Now, these were not Americans bred on horseback, like in the Old West, but they uh. took to it apparently very naturally. Oh, of course. So yeah. these possibilities oh, are so. still there. America still oh, counts. In fact, America counts more than ever on a small army, mm. the most used part of which is a band of Homeric heroes, 
Well, yeah, I mean, and that shows you again the dilemma of when you bureaucratize something, you still need your special force. Exactly. <laughs> it's like the SWAT our, teams our... and police departments. This is the same principle. Yes, and it's, of course, always incredibly dangerous, but it's inevitable. It's necessary yeah, to any yeah. free people. And well, you're see, right, it's just the extreme version of freedom, just like the tribe of Scar is the extreme version of freedom. They have no limits on Earth. But the thing that Ford's willing to do that we're not is to confront the reality of that necessity. Yes. We now don't want to confront the reality of those differences. Yeah, it was the greatness of Ford that made him see order and cohesion within this complexity but wow. the less people are ready for that the less they will be willing to deal with the complexity which can be experienced as chaos if you don't understand it but the advantage that Ford had over those of us that get educated in the university which establishes disciplines that teach you to understand things in ways that I don't think reveal reality quite as well as if you simply understand things through the great literature that is established over thousands of years that enables you to start thinking about these things. Ford's was not a formal education. It was not established by the modern necessity of making knowledge, and particularly knowledge about human beings, intelligible through a scientific method. For Ford, it's always about human things and understanding them from the point of view of how humans understand those things politically, not theoretically through some lens. You know, progressivism, when the social scientists created the way to understand the past, it made it almost unintelligible in an interesting way that made it possible to preserve heroes and villains. Yes. Vice and virtue. All of those things. And anyway. in that sense, the main takeaway from John Ford is that there are essential ways in which poetry is simply superior to any of historical course. or social science account. And that's a hard pill to swallow, but well, it's yeah. true. And I think it's why in our own society today in America, the social scientists and the intellectuals go on with their kind of abstract, lifeless writing. Whereas young people who are interested in the truth like you'd learn it in a John Ford, movie they go to the movies or to computer games to find stories about heroes <laughs> yeah yeah i think that's true i Some hope ways. we've convinced our audience to give it a look or another look <laughs> and to confront these fundamental questions about how family is established and defended mm -hmm. and what danger there lies when you open the floodgates to real heroism how yeah. dangerous it really is and how inevitable in human things that we've not gone beyond as World War II proved in John Ford's maturity and as special forces operators prove today in yeah. a society that's far more technological and scientific. And it turns out that all the science and technology you put into special forces does not alter their essential manliness. No, that's true. And of course, you know, when it comes down to it, in the end, it wasn't a missile that got Osama bin Laden. <laughs> yeah, right. That governmental so, anyway. Washington DC idea, the Jupiter complex, you can rain down lightning on your enemies. Yeah. No, some guy is going to have to go and do it. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that Ford's had a kind of revival in the last number of years. For a while there, he was not 
I mean, I remember Bogdanovich saying when I was at a conference up there at Hillsdale with him that after the 60s, particularly when Ford became tainted with Nixon because he accepted the Medal of Freedom from Nixon when he got the American Film Institute's first annual award, and he got up and said, God bless President Nixon. That tainted him. For, there was for, a countercultural statement. Yeah. He said he wasn't treated so very well in the film schools. I think maybe that's changed by now, I hope. Yeah, and there are people like Spielberg who say, that's the guy who taught me where to put oh, the camera yeah. and how to aim. Yeah. Where is your vanishing point in a particular scene? Calculate, look at it, think. I think the people that grew up in that era that saw the Ford movies, like Scorsese and Milius and Spielberg, they all yes, learned exactly. and, and they recognized. They learned and copied Ford in many ways. But the young students that came along that were taught by the professors in the film schools, because more and more, I think a lot of these people go to film schools in a way in which they never would have done in that earlier period. Yeah. So it was really their experience rather than their education that was more helpful yes. to them. And it's formative. These things impress you and they deepen the more you think about them. Yeah. And uh, in certain ways, they're coming back just like uh, somebody like Clint Eastwood. His best Western was his last Western, Unforgiven. He got deeper and deeper, and at the end of it, he ended up where John Ford was. The same fundamental questions about America and the difference between civilization and savage freedom as such. Oh, yeah. No, there's no question about that. And some of the movies I think that people like Spielberg have done, say Saving Private Ryan, he's pretty still open to considering that those virtues, he still wants to honor. Yes. Like his father's courage in World War II or something like that. Yeah. The lessons of John Ford about uh, savagery and civilization, about honor and law and all these things transferred really to the cities. And the crisis of the 70s in that case, the crisis of the crime waves and the social upheaval and the fear of a terrible decade that created a new occasion for movie makers to reflect on what virtues really are necessary. Manly men seem crazy, in certain ways are crazy. But in certain ways, they see and confront things the rest of us don't. Yeah. And that ambiguity is preserved more in urban than in rural settings, more in town than country. I think one of the things, too, you have to remember that Ford was always attentive to, no matter how much he tried to engage the most important problems, he also knew that this is a form of entertainment for people. You've got to make it interesting for them, too. People yeah. that don't reflect at any profound level, you can engage them. And it's amazing how much the Western, after the Second World War, and partly, I think, because of Ford, the whole first generation, when television became popularized, yes. was raised on the Western on television. Whether yes, it was Gunsmoke, Have Gun, Will Trap. There were dozens and dozens yeah, and, of Western. Right, Bonanza, Rawhide, which made oh, oh, tons of them. all and this stuff. It was full of it. Yeah, no, and it's amazing that a lot of those guys that I talked to that had gone on to fight in Vietnam, the things that they always came back to and talked about were the Western movies, the things that shaped them in a way in which stayed with them throughout their whole lives. Yeah, that was the resource for yeah, stories that about was, manliness. That was our Homer for a while. Yes, and it was, <laughs> was publicly lovable 
which meant that men didn't feel excluded and at the extreme it was of great artistic power like you mentioned Jorge Luis Borges before the greatest director influenced by John Ford is Akira Kurosawa oh yeah there's no was doubt obsessive about, about John Ford he dressed like John Ford on set in Japan well, he he even and created Toshiro Mifune to be the, his John Wayne Exactly, because he learned from John Ford yeah. that a nation's history with its entire tragedy and hope for a future could be put in story. Not the catastrophe of World War II, not the challenge of modern science could stop this, that there was a new birth for poetry. And of course, just consider that Americans were on the winning side. The Japanese were wiped out by World War II. Yeah. It was much you harder know, than I, he thought. I know, John I Ford know you're is your teacher. I know that you know who Leo Strauss is. Yes. Leo Strauss's favorite TV show that you couldn't call him at that time because he wouldn't answer his phone. Perry Mason? Was, no, Gunsmoke. Really? Yeah. I, I knew about the one, but not the other one. <laughs> no, wow. he liked Perry Mason, too, because the law always triumphed. But he really liked Gunsmoke because it engaged always the moral question yeah. in, a, in the language of the people, in the way exactly. in which it's intelligible to them. Yes, that is the one thing that John Ford had, that Kurosawa had, that in our yeah. times Clint Eastwood had, but has been wasted. Now you can have stories about the moral crisis where manliness steps in, but they're not popular anymore. No, this you have to. This is where we're in trouble in a certain way. and I think we, the conventions of our time make it necessary for you to go outside of our time in order to engage any of these questions. It's either going to be science fiction in the future or some other form yeah. that does not require that you bow down to what is conventionally acceptable. And the strange thing is that we live in a world where the popular request is for escape from the conventions. Like you mentioned the Orestea of Aeschylus before the trilogy of tragedies about the installation of law ultimately the installation yeah. of trial by jury in Athens, the original democracy later. That's the Batman trilogy of... When I was... The, you have to go there to science fiction, hero books, comic books, all these yeah. fantasies. Only there are you allowed to say the things that people want to learn about. Well, when I was lecturing about Liberty Balance in some of the Publius programs years ago, I remember some of them who weren't familiar with the Westerns, but I remember one of them came up to me and said, well, you, have you ever seen The Dark Knight? And I hadn't seen it at the time. He said, well, that's just like Liberty Valley. In other words, he understood the connection that you're talking about. But this is the world that they get. Yes. And I think Christopher Nolan is a thoughtful director, just looking yep. at the stuff that he's done. I haven't seen Dunkirk, but it sounds like that's a pretty thoughtful movie, oh, too. Oh, yeah. Dunkirk is a hundred minutes of trying to tell you, if you've ever read Churchill's speeches, how does that feel? How do they affect you at the pathos of rhetoric? How do you make them come alive to people who weren't alive in 1940? Right. And it also goes down to the details of Churchill's speeches. Like you read Churchill's Dunkirk speech. Mm -hmm. Why does he insist so much on airmen? Nolan thought through it and put the pilots at the climax yeah. of the story. Yeah. It's but amazing what he, what... how careful he is. What I liked when I read the comment that he made to a criticism about why it was that he didn't engage the bigger questions, the political questions, and I thought he gave a very thoughtful answer that was the most fundamental one. This was about the survival of a people. This was yes. about survival. That's your first beginning point. 
before you can engage. And in a certain way, that's always the question, right? Whether it's a civilized form of survival or a barbaric form, you're faced with that first necessity of survival. What, what I think the West is struggling with right now is perhaps a loss of the desire even to survive. If you can't rekindle that desire to survive, then the prospects for civilization are not so great. And again, this is a great John Ford theme that thinking through the goodness of life and mm -hmm. the providence of life is actually very difficult. And in times of crisis, it is revealed just how difficult it is. We yeah. can take it for granted for a long time, but then a crisis will come. Yeah. And someone like Lincoln will be necessary. No, it that's be true. good to be otherwise, but it's not otherwise. This is who we are. Right. Well, yes. sir, thank you for I think a we great went over conversation, our hour. I think. This is going to be interesting and informative for our audience. Well, and good. it also sets up all these other John Ford conversations. I'm grateful you took the time okay. to talk to me. And let's well, do Liberty Valance next and talk about the rule of law. Okay. All right. Okay. Good talking to you, Titus. All yeah. the best, sir. Okay. We'll see you then. This is the first in our series of podcasts on American masters, John Ford, The Searchers. Next time, Professor Marini and I will be discussing The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, Stagecoach After That, My Darling Clementine, and so forth. Meanwhile, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. Please take the time to give us a rating and a review. It really helps with reaching a broader audience. You can also find us on SoundCloud and you can always follow me on Twitter at Titus Phil. All the best and until next time.